uh, homosexuality is no longer a marginal issue that we can afford to ignore, I feel like. Uh, I don't know what your past experience has been in talking about homosexuality in front of your congregation or with people or whatever. Uh, I've preached on it in the past, and to be honest with you, it was kind of like, you know what, I think people need to know and have good answers, biblical answers to this whole idea of, of homosexuality. I am not here today, and I will say this very plainly, I'm not here to give a orthodox, biblical uh, uh, defense of why I think homosexuality is wrong. I'm going to guess and hope we're all on that page together and so I don't need to go there, okay? What I more want to do, guys, truthfully, is uh, I want to have a discussion. I want to just set up the issue and I want to give you some things. It's kind of, if I just threw it out there and said, hey, let's talk about this, how are you handling it at church? It becomes sort of a free-for-all. So I'd at least want to kind of frame the issue for us uh, and it gives you something to push back on. It gives you something to say, Chris, I don't agree with you there. Or, uh, yeah, I think that's good. Or, have you thought about this? And then we can talk about this together. Because, as PJ said, as I thought about this, and when he asked me to talk, I thought, you know, this would be a great group of smart, gospel-centered guys that can come together and let's help each other, let's equip each other to go back into our churches and into our communities with, you know, what, what's a proper Christian, gospel-centered understanding that, that we should approach this issue with in our churches. So I, I really do want to just kind of set the table and then start a conversation with you guys today. So so just a couple of introductory matters. So I don't think it's marginal. I've preached on it. You've probably preached on it. Honestly, when I've preached on it, I knew, you know, you know there's you know there's homosexuality in our community, but 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 today is different. It's just I never, maybe I'm naive, I never thought in my lifetime in pastoral ministry that I would, I would see this issue be so front and center the way it is today. So, I mean, you got, you got Owen uh, Strawn, is that how you say his name, by the way? I always get his name. Strand, Strikens, whatever. This um, <laughs> quote is crazy. There's no longer an opt-out option. The conflict over homosexuality and marriage is here to stay. It's only going to pick up steam. Barring a miracle from God, the clock will not be turned back. Most every Christian in every place in America is going to face a direct confrontational challenge on this issue. You can't escape it. Tim Keller adds in a recent article that he wrote, the relationship of homosexuality to Christianity is without doubt one of the main subjects of cultural conversation today. If you're a Christian in New York City, and I'm at California, it is nearly impossible to talk about your faith without this being raised. Although it was not central to the gospel message of the heart of Christianity, right now the cultural moment requires that we be prepared to address this issue whenever we are publicly identified as Christians. So, so that's kind of what I want to do. So, okay, there's a lot of ways we could go with this. And all I want to do is sort of frame up the issue, give you some things. And just so you, and I, I want to just tell you this, just not, not in any way to brag. In my former life, before I was a pastor, I was a lawyer. Uh, and I practiced for about seven years. And so so some of this is going to come out of my uh, pastoral background, and some of it's going to come out of my lawyer background to just talk to you guys sort of legally about some things. And, I, and we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I just I want to just sort of put it before you just so so you're you're aware of some things. And maybe you already are. And again, I, 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 I don't I don't I, I'm I'm here as a learner with you. I, I hope you I hope you hear that. Okay, so let's frame the issue. And so what I've done is, I, as I was thinking about this, and this helps me just sort of think about it, I thought about it. If you look at that little graph in front of you, sort of the quadrants, 
Um, you've got Christian and non-Christian, and SSA is same-sex attraction, and then SSL is just my abbreviation for somebody that lives the same-sex lifestyle, right? They are. They would say, I'm gay, I, I, I practice homosexuality, or in, and I'm going to use the word gay or homosexual to include every letter, you know, the LGBTQ, all that stuff. I mean, it's, I, I'm going to use that in a generic way so that I don't have to refine it the whole time we go along. Okay, so, so if you look at that graph, and the way it would break down is this. Quadrant one would be people who would say, look, uh, I am attracted to somebody of the same sex and I'm not a Christian. So they'd say, look, I, I don't love Jesus. I struggle with same-sex attraction. They might even say, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want to be this way. But I don't love Jesus. And so, okay. Quadrant two would be, um, these are people that live a same-sex lifestyle and are not a Christian. So I don't love Jesus and I'm gay. Quadrant three, same-sex attraction Christian. I love Jesus and struggle with same-sex attraction. And quadrant four would be, I love Jesus and I'm gay. Now, let me, let me suggest to you that at least in my experience, up until this sort of new conversation emerged in the culture, I think all of us were okay with one, two, and three. But what seems to be happening in increasing measure is quadrant four is becoming more and more popular. There's an article you'll see referred to down in the footnotes um, where there's now guys and gals out there that are actually biblically defending the gay lifestyle. I mean, like, literally, they're going to take their Bible, say, we believe it is inerrant, we believe it is infallible, I mean, all these things, and we're going to show you from Scripture why we think it's it's not uh, incompatible with Christianity, okay? So so that's kind of, on a personal level, people would say that. Okay, well, if you go to the, the next page, then you've got sort of, now, now let's talk about kind of pastoral ministry or churches. How do they respond? So this would be kind of churches. So you've got, again, these quadrants. And, and quadrant one would be, hey, we affirm the same set, we affirm the gay lifestyle, and we're vocal about it, okay? Like, like we're going to vote and, and say that, that priests and, you know, can be, uh, we can ordain homosexuals, we think that's a good thing, okay? Homosexuality is compatible with Christianity in the Bible, and we teach that. I mean, how, do, how many of you are at least aware of what happened at APU a few weeks ago? And uh, if you don't know, there was a professor who was in their theology department, and she, um, she decided this year that she no longer wanted to be Heather, she wanted to be Adam. And so she, she sort of assigned her own gender. Okay? Now, they dismissed her ultimately, and uh, there was a big, you know, a lot of students protesting and people upset, national news media there. Um, but but it, there, there was there was articles that were coming out where, where some of, some lesbian and other students were saying it was so freeing to talk to her because she showed me how I could be he showed me how I could be gay or lesbian and a Christian. Okay, so this is this is happening. Uh, quadrant two, they would say um, we oppose the same-sex lifestyle and we're vocal about it. So we, you know, the people say homosexuality is incompatible with Christianity, and we teach that. Quadrant three, we affirm the same-sex lifestyle and we're silent about it. Okay, so it's it's, it's homosexually homosexual. <coughs> it, it, it's compatible, but we just kind of we stay silent uh, about the debate. And there's no quadrant four. We oppose the same-sex lifestyle, the gay lifestyle, and we're silent now. 
What's concerning to me is that the two growing quadrants, again, are one and four. So, so there's this growing vo- vocality, but grow, growing voice of people that say, hey, you know what? It's been backwoods for us to think that homosexuality is wrong and there can be good, uh, honest, practicing homosexual Christians. And then there's this other growing majority that's kind of like, you know, and maybe this group would be part of that. We don't believe homosexuality is compatible with the Bible. We read our Bibles, it says very plainly homosexuality is wrong. We just don't say anything about it. We've just chosen to remain silent. Okay, so, why? Um, and so let me, let me just throw out a, a few possibilities here. <clears throat> Possibly number one, we don't know what to say. We aren't sure where we stand. Um, maybe you're part of that. You're, you're, you're not quite sure what to say. I think, I think I mean, I'm going to guess, again, everybody in here knows where you stand on this issue of homosexuality. Possibility number two, we aren't aware of this issue in our context. You kind of feel like that's out there at the fringes, but it's not It's not part of your church. It's not part of the community that you run with. Uh, possibly number three, you assume it's not an issue in the churches. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's being blown out of proportion by somebody. Possibly number four, we're intimidated by the increasing momentum of the voices in quadrant one. Right? I mean, there is a listen. We are, we are, standing up against an avalanche, a tsunami of opposition uh, to us. Right? I mean, that, that's the culture we're in. Right? It's not. There's. There. It, it, it's now. You're crazy if you don't go along with this. This is. And so, so there's an intimidation factor that I think can make us cower. Possibilities number five through eight come from a great book, and I don't have it. I actually have it on my iPad called Love Into Light. Uh, you've got the footnote down there, and I would, I would recommend that to anybody. Uh, a good book by Peter Hubbard. And, and he says this, we believe homosexuals uh, are abnormal. Okay, so, so they're not like us. So one reason we stay silent, one reason we don't really talk about it is it just feels so abnormal. Possibly number six is we believe homosexuals have turned aside, so their sin is unnatural, and, and so I don't, I don't know how I address that. We believe homosexuals, number seven, are defined by their identity because the truth of the matter is there's a lot of people out there that, that when they talk about being gay, they mean that. They mean that's who I am fundamentally, right? So that you've even got, um, I forget his name now, um, um, he just wrote a book. Uh, he and Sam Alberry sort of wrote books that come to the very same conclusion. Sam Alberry will say, I struggle, this guy, I struggle. Von Robert? No. Um, uh, it's by Charlie's Cruciform Press. Wesley. Wesley. Wesley Hill? Hill? Hill. I think it might be Wesley. Wesley Hill. So Sam Alberry says, look, I struggle with same-sex attraction. That's, what I, that's how I want to say what's going on with um, because I don't want, I believe, you know, First Corinthians six. I, 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 that's what I was. I'm now in Christ, right? Uh, Wesley Hill comes to the very same conclusion: homosexual is wrong. I need to live a celibate lifestyle. But he will call himself gay, and he and he does that probably. And I think Keller even surmises this because he doesn't want those who struggle with this to think this is just something you can put away. Like it's, 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 it's a bigger issue than just I can decide not to be gay. Okay? And so, so they, they come at this from, 
from different angles. But but some are defined by that identity. And then possibly in a rate, we don't believe homosexuals can really change. I mean, that's a that's a pretty uh, strong indictment, right? Because that means we, we don't believe fundamentally in the, in the power of the gospel. So this little graph here, this comes again from, from uh, Peter Hubbard, and he sort of talks about these misunderstandings. So those correspond to numbers 5 through 8 above. And he talks about, look, the history of salvation, you got the creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I think you all kind of follow that and the gospel, the gospel chain and scripture, and then and then the, the misunderstandings of homosexuality. But then then how does the gospel answer that? No, no, no. The truth is they are not like us. Yes, they are. They're created in God's image, right? Their desire to be loved. Um uh is 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 God given? The, 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 these things are, are warped, like all sin. Okay, so their sin is not like ours. Well, no, they haven't just turned aside. We've all turned aside. Uh, so they're defined by their sin. Well, First Corinthians six, we get a new identity in Jesus. Uh, they they don't uh, uh, they, they they can't change. I'm sorry, this is what that should say. And and then we say no no we can we can change. We we hope in the future grace of God that we can change. Let's keep going. I just kind of want to get we'll frame this conversation for us. Why should we enter the conversation? Uh, and, and, and the debate, however you want to say that. I, I can think of a few reasons, and maybe you guys can, can add to this. Number one, because I feel like this is a golden opportunity to let the foolishness of God prove itself wiser than men. I don't know about you. Uh, demonstrate the power of uh, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. I don't know about you, but, but when you're faced with these kinds of things, there there might be a temptation. Let me. I'll just speak for myself. There's a temptation to fall back on my own wisdom of how I would handle it, of what I should do, my own defense mechanism, and instead of saying no, this is where. This, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this rot and decay. This is a golden opportunity for us to see the gospel really come to life. Um, I I feel like every generation has the tide they have to stand against. Maybe this is ours. And where we see the gospel proven true. Um, And and this, I feel like, is just one of those wonderful opportunities. Will there be opposition? Will people not like you because you say it? Yeah. Number two, because the opportunity is right for a winsome, biblically faithful, gospel-centered, God-honoring answers to questions the culture is asking. And this is a huge question. People in your congregations are wondering. They're confused. They're reeling. They're coming and saying, hey, wait a second. Why can't two committed people in a relationship that say they love each other, what's wrong with that? And so, so we, we've got to have... We've got to help them understand that. Number three, because the spiral of silence, I don't know if that's a, a term you're familiar with, is, is a real danger. Chuck Colson talked about this, and, 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 and um, you know, during, during the Nazi, you know, as, as Nazis were rising in Germany, there was, this, there was this spiral of silence. Nobody wanted to say anything, which meant more people didn't want to say anything than more people and more people, until finally it just got to where it was this hush-hush. You, you didn't talk about it. And he said, he said, we need to sort of reverse that spiral and go the opposite direction. Because isn't this true? When you hear somebody confront an issue boldly, you feel emboldened to talk about it. 
And, and I feel like we need to help our congregation. We don't need to be jerks. We don't need to be unloving. But we need to speak boldly, truthfully, lovingly, carefully. But we need to speak so that they feel like they can, hey, you know what? He said something. I can say something. And since I heard him say something, well, then I'll say something. And since PJ, then I'll say something. And it just keeps going. And it's not that we want to drown out with our voices, but we don't want to cave in with silence. At some point, silence is saying something. And it's not saying what we want it to say. Okay, number four, because religious liberty is at stake. This is a little bit where I feel like the church has fallen asleep at the wheel, and there is a real, genuine religious liberty issue here. And I want you to think, and you know, we can ponder this if you want, but I mean, think about you being asked to do weddings that you would disagree with, or think about people in your congregation who want to adopt children. Okay, this is not far-fetched. This is happening. It's happening in other countries right now where they're saying, sorry, you, you can't adopt people because you don't embrace the homosexual lifestyle. You don't think that's okay, and so we can't let you adopt. Think about tax-exempt status. Think about uh, hate speech. Think about, I mean, those kinds of things can come to bear by the state if if this thing is allowed to run its full course. Okay, number five, I think we all know because false teaching has to be refuted. I mean, Paul is unequivocal about that to Timothy and to Titus. They refute people who contradict. They're, they're leading people into sin and we need to stop that. Number six, because we're accountable to God to warn people about the wages of sin. I've always, you know, every time I read Ezekiel and you see that where he says, man, if you're a shepherd and I tell you to warn somebody and you don't warn them from their sin, I'm going to hold you accountable. If you do and you warn them, then their sin's on their head. But if I tell you to warn them and you don't, their sin's on your head. And I think that's one of the things God would say to us is, man, we, we cannot stay silent where God has said um, silence is not an option. Uh, number seven, because it's going to come with the blessing of God. Blessed are those who are pure persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter kinds of all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. I don't know about you. This passage is living today. I mean, I, I, I always, you know, I read that and go, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and I'm sure people that are struggling in some of these countries would be able to relate to that. Now I look at that and say, that's us. That's us. We're, we're at a place where, where people are going to say, I hate you. I revile you because you take a stand on this issue. You should not be in ministry. You are an evil person because of that. And Jesus says, rejoice. I get happy about that. That's a great thing. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. This is awesome. I mean, that's amazing. I don't know anybody who rejoices because somebody says you're evil. And Jesus says, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're not being jerks about it. But we're speaking the truth in love. People are going to utter all kinds of evil against us falsely. Okay? Okay, some practical considerations just for you. Consider adding a statement on human sexuality and marriage to your official statement of faith. Has anybody done this, by the way? Yeah, yeah. It's also on the Gospel Coalition. Okay. 
I think it'd be really wise. And the Gospel Coalition has a great statement. I mean, you know, adopt it, grab it, take it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna end up doing this at, at Foothill Church, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, Let's suppose tomorrow somebody shows up at your church and says, uh, we're gay and we want to be married at your church, or Tim, I want you to marry us, okay? And Tim says, no, you know, I'm not doing that, right? That's against what I believe Scripture tells me I should do. I don't believe that's a marriage, whatever. Okay, I want to suggest to you there, there's a possibility that legally they could look at you and say, based on what? <clears throat> and you'd say, well, I don't believe that. Well, show me where you don't believe that. Well, I'm just telling you, I don't believe Yeah, but do you have it written anywhere? Well, no, but I don't... Well, see, you just made that up just now. And I can absolutely see courts going, you know what, you can't just make that up on the spot. You need... You, so that's what I'm saying. In some ways, this is a protective measure for you to say, you know what, I'm going to stick this into our statement of faith. Consider revising policies in your church, like... Like, uh, can your pastors do weddings? I mean, they need to specifically say no. Um, can, can can people use your facility? No. I mean, you 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 create the parameters for that. And by the way, you got to be very specific. I was <clears throat> John Wallace, the president of APU, spoke at our church a couple weeks ago, and <clears throat> and I was asking. We we're talking about this whole thing that happened at APU, and 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 he said, Chris, it's the craziest thing. He said, I. We sat down as an administration and we drafted a statement on human sexuality a few years ago. Never occurred to us to put something in there about gender. So, so, so now, most likely, <clears throat> unless they did something behind the scenes, which they probably did, <clears throat> there will be a lawsuit. And, the, and the, the, the person will just say, you guys just made that up. You guys just made that up because that that you know you hadn't thought of it and now you're kicking me out and there was nothing in our in our uh, statement of faith there was nothing in our policies that that permitted somebody from <clears throat> prohibited somebody from you know who was a man becoming a woman so so i i think you've got to think about these things <clears throat> excuse me from a legal standpoint um that, that these things could have ongoing ramifications okay but let's let's talk about more of the pastoral considerations um I think, guys, we, we have to assume that gay people or at least those struggling with same-sex attraction are actually in your congregation. And we have to make our churches a safe place to talk about their struggles. To let them know we're for them, not against them. Right? Because, look, they're already coming. <clears throat> Whether you're this way or not, they're already coming armed for bear. They're already coming with presuppositions that if I say I'm gay, I'm ostracized. If I say I struggle with this, I'm out. Um, so, so, so is your church a safe environment for them to be able to talk about this? Because look, at, you know, it, it, hopefully your church is a safe place to talk about whatever sin people are struggling with, right? I mean, I started with gambling. I started with lying. I started with lust. I started with sexual immorality. And look, we're not condoning that, right? I mean, I think we all get that. We're simply saying, but can we can we wrestle with that? Can, 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 can that be okay to wrestle with that and let people know that we're, we're for you, man. We're, we're, we're on your side in your, in your warfare against the sin you struggle with. And we want you to be on our side of the warfare and the sin we're struggling with. I think, guys, there's probably 
I'm, I'm against, um, what do I call it? Naked preaching, where it's like, you know, I tell you all my faults, and I'm a loser, and, you know, I, I struggle with that. I, mean, I think, I think it's a, there, there, we can go too far, but I think we can also shield ourselves too much, and I think there's probably coming a time when we, as preachers and teachers, need to be very honest about our struggles with sin and the power of the gospel to fight that struggle and show them. And I don't think that means that, you know what, I've licked it, now I can talk about it. It might be that you're honest and humble enough to say, let me tell you something I struggle with. I mean, I, you know, whatever it is, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't do this all right, and I, and, and, but this is how the gospel answers that issue for me. And, and, and help them with the application. Like, like, make it easy to talk about. I love Keller's quote, churches should feel more like a waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. Right? You go to a doctor's waiting room and you assume everybody in there is sick. You go to a job interview and everybody's on their best behavior. They're all dressed up. They're looking good. They're all like, you know, I'm ready to give all the right answers. Does your church look more, which does it look more like? Right? And, and, and I think Keller's right. That we want people to come in and go, look, I, I, I'm assuming there's, there's sin in this room. Not we celebrate it. It's just that, that's, that's, where, that's, that, that, that's part of our, our fallenness. That's what we're struggling with. And we're, we're waging war against our own sin. Number three, you know, I put this one in for myself. One sermon won't do it. Because here's how I've been thinking about this. I even processed with the staff the, a couple weeks ago. I was like, you know, I know I need to talk about this. I, I, I got to preach another sermon on this. I got to help arm people and give them, give them the ability to answer biblically, lovingly, in a God-honoring, gospel-centered way. I've got to help them. And I think I do, and I think you do. But I don't think this is a one sermon, one and done. I, I think this is such a big issue that I think it needs to start to leak its way into our vocabulary and our application as pastors. I don't think it needs to become everything. I don't think it needs to be every week. But I think people need to hear how does the gospel answer sexual brokenness? Homosexuality, because look, is that not just a massive issue in our culture in general? Whether it's homosexuality or straight, mm-hmm. it's just huge. So, 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 think back and go. Okay, have I ever? Because I'm, I'm assuming all of us strive to not just be exegetically accurate, but to sort of drive the point home in application and help people apply this text to their lives. Have you ever? I'm not saying you haven't. I look back on my own and go, I don't know that I've done that. Maybe ever. <laughs> like, like made application into this world of sexual sin, into this world of homosexuality, and say, there's hope. There's hope for somebody struggling with this. So, so I, I, don't, I don't think this is just, hey, if you'll, if you'll preach a sermon in the next couple of months, you can breathe a sigh of relief and go on. I think, as Owen Strawn said, I, I, I think this is going to be relentless and we're going to have to answer those things. Number four, honor singleness. Uh, Sam Albury says something about this in his book and I think he's right. Are you okay with a Sam Albury? <laughs> he's on staff at a church, by the way. Could he be on staff at your church? 
Um, are you okay with a guy like him who says, look, I struggle with this. God is mighty. I believe the gospel. I am celibate. But the same way that you look at a woman and undress her with her eyes, I do that with a man. And this is, this is such a part of my life that I probably will never be able to get married. So is it okay to be single? And I think, I, th- I think he's right. I think we've got to step back and go, you know what? Single people aren't you know, this weird pariah group in the congregation that we're constantly urging you better get married. I, listen, I could be accused of that. Like just, just get married. Just stop the nonsense and get married. But is there, is there a place for honoring singleness in your church? How about honoring marriage? Do you hold up? You know, I wonder, I wonder if some of the whole conversation about marriage, of course, it's not, I wonder, for sure this is the fact, that, that marriage has been so denigrated in the last 30 to 40 years in the United States that why not open it to whatever? I mean, we don't hold up and honor uh, biblical covenants, marriage, uh, and, and, and show the beauty of it why should they want to follow in a train of something we've never really showed them? I'm not saying you've never done this. I'm saying do we do we try and honor and show them what real, beautiful, gospel-centered, covenant-keeping marriage looks like? Um, somebody at the Gospel Coalition a couple weeks ago did a great, I mean, link to a, an article about Bob Cousy. Did anybody see that? Bob Cousy was a, one of the most famous Celtics players, you know, and um, uh, t- just just talked about this incredible relationship he had with his wife uh, who had dementia and she I, I don't even know if Bob Cousy is a Christian there's nothing in the article that led me to believe it was his faith that did this but he's made in the image of God and God made marriage and, and somehow it, it, it came out in this marriage so that, so that Bob Cousy cared for his wife in unbelievable ways. Like he lost his social life. He, he, um, he, he said literally for the last 20 years of my life with my wife, they were married for 66 years. He said, we held hands for the last 20 years. And the, it's, just, it's just like I read it out loud to my kids. We were sitting there, and my kids were getting a haircut, and the barber was sitting right there. I said, like, I'm going to read you guys an article. And then I start reading it. My kids are like tearing up, and like, my gosh, you know, I mean, here's, here's this guy who's got, his wife has dementia, and so he would, he would drive, he would have her car shipped to Florida every winter, and he would tell her that, oh, you drove that, honey. He would get up and make, make breakfast for her and set her pills out, and then she would get up and she would forget, and he would tell her, thank you for this beautiful meal. I mean, just ways of... Because she never wanted to be told she had dementia and that made her very angry. And so he was like, you know, I'm just going to love her. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to sacrifice her. Do, do we hold up a biblical portrait of marriage and say, here it is. I mean, if we did that, how many people would be saying, I want I want what the Bible holds out. And I don't want this counterfeit thing the culture's off. Provide pastoral care number six and resources. In this book, Sam Mulberry says, pastoral care for those with same-sex attraction does not need to be structured, but it does need to be visible. People struggling with same-sex attraction need to know the church is ready to support and help them. Are you making that known? I mean, I look at Foothill Church. We're not. 
or not. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm convicted by that. I'm like, would somebody come into our church and go, man, it's, it's, it's okay that I'm not okay, and I, and there's things that I, I want to, I, I need to wrestle, and, and, and I, and this is a place that will actually help me with this. Number seven, don't define people with same-sex attraction by just this issue. Okay, so so we can be friends to them, we can listen, we can try to understand them, but but there's a danger of letting our relationship become one-dimensional. Like all I want to talk about is how you're gay. You know, all I want to talk about is your struggles. All I want to talk about is your past. No, I just want to be your friend. And in the course of that friendship, if things come up, great. I remember several years ago. Um, uh, this was at a former church I was at. This guy came down at the end of service and engaged me in a conversation. He started talking, and it was, I mean, he he, uh, he was really, like, dodging the issue. Just like, hey, I, uh, um, and I, I'm, I'm looking at him and thinking. And I just I said, you're gay, aren't you? He was like, oh, you're gay. Yes. He said, okay, so, all right, we're done. Now, what's the issue? Like, what do you want to talk about? Like, well, let's... Let's just bury that hatchet, and I'm not going to run screaming from you. <laughs> Let's talk. So he began to talk, and he began to talk about how he'd run off into this gay lifestyle, and he wants to come back, and he doesn't like this mother. Awesome. So, so we talked, and here's a guy who, who, who loves Jesus, who grew up in the church, and his parents are missionaries. He knows the truth. I didn't need to preach the gospel to him at that moment. He needed to embrace it. But what he needed to know is that hey, you know what, we can be friends and, and you and I can have a relationship. And, and the truth of the matter is, I'm tall and neatly cut and, you know, uh, and, and he and I went to lunch and I'm sure there were people looking at both of us going, they're gay. No, I'm, I'm very much heterosexual, but, but I, was, <laughs> I was looking and going, you know what, um, am, am I going to not do this because of what other people think about me? Or am I going to, no, I, I think Jesus would rather go, yeah, you can call me a drunkard, you can call me a sinner, but I'm going to be with these people. Um, and we developed a friendship. His name was Ryan. And uh, and Ryan kept coming back to church, and, and today, as far as I know, Ryan is living for Jesus, lives in another state now. Um, I don't say because I think I've done it perfectly. I'm just saying, can we... I think it might require guys, guys like us, um, to give a little more face time to people like this, to those struggling. You know, we want to throw them off to a counselor. We want to just, hey, here's a book to read, something like that, instead of saying, no, let, let me invite you. In. Number eight, invite, uh, invite homosexuals to the table on the same terms as every other sinner. Faith, right, repentance, and faith in Jesus. Okay, they, there's not a special route they take. We call them, we call, we call sin, sin. We say it like it is, we do it in a loving way, and we call them to repentance. Okay? And that leads to number nine. Remember that the gospel demands everything, not just from homosexuals, from all of us. Right? It demands my all. Right? I love that. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my demands my soul, my life, my all. So, so that's for gay, straight, self-righteous, pagan, and we must change. 
Okay, guys, the, the culture wants to say you're not loving if you're calling people to change. The gospel says there's no gospel, there's no such thing as repentance without change. That means a reversal of direction. That means I don't look like Jesus right now. To become more like Jesus, I have to change. And so we have to be willing to say that out loud. God will not bless, God forbids homosexual sin. And God has a right to tell us to do whatever he wants to tell us to do. I mean, if he can tell, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and these guys, hey, you know what, lay on your side for a year and smoke this over dung. And what, I mean, God can ask you to do whatever he wants to ask you to do. And he can tell you what to do with your body. But you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And, and then telling them the glories of that. That's a wonderful thing. I, I glory in the fact that God can tell me what to do with my body. And then, and then number ten, what if we saw this as an opportunity rather than a threat? What if we said, what, what if God could use one of the most controversial moral issues in our nation to awaken his church rather than damage it? Um, I think that's a I think that's a that's a paradigm shift for us. That's us not looking and saying we've got to retreat from this and I'm afraid of it. This is saying, wow, God, in our day, you know, I, I don't know about your context. I'm out in the suburbs. We're a little bit like Orange County. There's a lot of religion out where I am. A lot of Roman Catholic, huge Mormon population, good-sized Christian population because they're American or suburban. Right? Lots of religion. And so there can be some issues there, right? They're, 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 those are hard things to break through. And, and, and I feel like, man, what a great opportunity. God is, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to be crass and say it this way, God is in some ways serving us up this opportunity to, to reach into the messy world of sin that maybe in our, our modern American sanitized suburban Christianity we don't get a chance to do very well. And here we go. And God's saying, here it is. Guys, I, I, I was talking to our staff the other day. And I said, this is, a, this is an unbelievable moment that we get to live in. In, in a lot of senses. But isn't this crazy? I never thought, I never thought that we would have to specifically define something that I felt like every Christian took for granted. And so I sort of liken this to like Chalcedon and Nicaea and some of these things where they had to define an area of theology that defined orthodoxy. And, and, and I think we're there with this issue where we, we've got to stand up and say, here's what we believe. This is, and I think in days to come, this is my opinion, I think in days to come, you're going to be able to set, let's say, statements of faith side by side. And boy, they're going to read very, very... I mean, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the two natures of Christ. I, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in all these things. And I'm gay. And I affirm homosexuality. Now, we would say, that's crazy. You can't do that. But you're going to see another one that says, we believe all those things... We also believe this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. This is what marriage means. 
something that I think I don't know about you I've taken for granted and that there's this there's this amazing moment in church history right now where we get a chance to help define this and I I I think this is going to be the difference between the future if you will of evangelicalism and one of the dividing lines of those who are quote unquote evangelical if we can still use that term and those who are not so so guys these questions that I put on here I didn't say hey let's let's have these as free-for-alls these are just more provocative questions for you maybe to ask yourself or sit down with your staff and say man or even just think about for yourself there's some legal things in there for you to think about there's some there's some scenarios for you to 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 think through and how would I answer that and what do I say to people like that so I don't I don't so much want to now just dive into these questions like I say let's so we frame the issue this is how I've tried to process it and and I want to learn I want us to learn together so so as you look at that are there things you'd say yeah but Chris um, this or, or, or questions you'd even ask how 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 are you dealing with this issue in your church? How are you dealing this with this in leadership? And uh, and, and and where is this helpful? And, and where maybe it doesn't go far enough? I mean, let's just let's just kind of have a, a conversation if that's okay. Is this issue? Are, are you are you wrestling with this at all in your churches, or even just as a, as a, an individual leader? Well, we're, we're on 4th of Vermont. I live off of Melrose of Vermont. We have a new bar <laughs> block, not even a full block from where right. I live. Yeah. Um, it's one of the more aggressive gay bars because there's there's even different types of gay bars in terms of the, the, the time to tell. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's an issue for us where we're at, and our church meets just uh, a mile from there. So yeah, it's an issue where we're at. It's an issue for our family to grow up. We have gay billboards things like that, dating hotline type thing yeah. that our kids get to see us. Yeah. And we're right next to LA City College, and that's where all the billboards are as well. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an issue for us. We've had different people visit our church. We have one member who is, who does struggle with same-sex attraction. I know, actually, we're going to baptize her the end of this month, but um, in our membership process, when we go through a statement of faith and things like that, then we have a membership interview. Yeah. My wife actually was harping on me for a while to put that as one of the questions. Yeah. Um, you know, are you divorced? This and that. And then, do you struggle with same-sex attraction? Yeah. And so um, that has now become part of our <coughs> just normal conversation. I explain why we asked the question, and you know, so our first, this is the first one ever since I started asking the question that actually just said, yeah, you know, I, I struggle with that. And so we talked about that. So yeah, it's a, it's an issue. Yeah. We're at. How do you explain that rationale? Is there asking the question? Why did you ask the question? Um, well, I tell them as as a well when we talk about membership, we define membership as taking responsibility for one another's discipleship, and then as a pastor elder, I'm required to watch over the soul and give an account to the Lord. So if there's any issues there that I need to be sensitive to in shepherding her, and even for the other members who are taking responsibility for her discipleship, um, it's good for me to know as a pastor when we when we actually affirm them, you know, if we present a, a member to the church or someone, if I present and commend someone to take them in to membership, um, I give a short bio of them, and then I let the church ask any questions, 
and then I give like maybe two or three shepherding points of how we can bless her. I'm not not that I would say that necessarily. Without, I would say that without her permission, and I, I don't think I have a permission to say, to say this. But even just for me to know, some of them will actually say, "Yeah, can you?" Yeah, because I let her know right at, right at the front. This doesn't mean you know we're shunning you. This means we love you. I mean, we we do love you. And we want to help you if you're struggling with it. And so just the whole atmosphere of care, and this is out of love for you and, and to help you, knowing our biblical convictions because we do go through the statement of faith and our church covenant before we even get to the membership interview, that they already know where our church stands, and we have Q and A during those things in our discussions. So it's not like brand new in that moment when I'm asking the question, like, oh, I didn't know you believe that. Like, they already know that. Mm-hmm. So if they're willing to admit at that point, they're already willing to be shepherded to some degree. So, What's the line for you guys if they're uh, not allowing them into membership and not letting them baptize? Or what, it, is there a line there that you, you would say, well, no, we can't let you in as a member? Yeah. Um, well, for us, it would be, is there repentance? So one, you have to recognize it as a sin. And then are you repentantly struggling through it? So, so someone says, I am lesbian, I'm a lesbian, or I am gay, and I don't necessarily, I'm not sorry for that, but I still love Jesus. Yeah, then that would be repentant, because right. you're not recognizing it as a sin. So we wouldn't allow them into membership. We, we would talk about, in our in, in our statement of faith, um, which is really just the Gospel Coalition statement of faith, except for the baptism and the church part, because we're Baptist. Um, in that, we, we have at the very bottom and in our bylaws where we say that if you're going to join our church, you don't have to agree with all of this right now because you might be a new Christian, you don't know all this doctrine, but you can't have any settled conviction against it. So if you have a settled conviction on infant baptism, we love you, praise the Lord, we have lots of Pacific Crossroads right near us, you know, just go there and uh, they preach the gospel, join them. So if you have a settled conviction, I think homosexuality is okay. If that's a settled, you can't, you know, you can't join our church. Any any pushback on even what's been said um, uh, of, of ways that you might handle it differently, or things you think we need to think about? I think PJ's examples are very helpful. Uh, how they go about membership and baptism. I just have a question because uh, well, you being a lawyer before and all of this stuff. Um, it's not that I don't agree with what you said. I agree with everything you said. In fact, putting it in the statement of faith and everything you mean. I'm contemplating and putting it in. But it just occurred to me that if we put it in, specifically you know, uh, addressing homosexuality or this thing about gender, wouldn't this, uh, wouldn't the, uh, first of all, is, wouldn't the statement of faith regarding uh, the sufficiency of scripture being, um, <coughs> let's say, rule for life and living, wouldn't it cover it already? And yeah. for, secondly, wouldn't stating it specifically be singling out one specific sin and rather than I mean inviting lawsuits or unwanted attention to that sin? Yeah, that's um, great. Thank you, President. Uh, so two points of clarification. So so the first part was fifty of scripture, doesn't that cover it? Well I yes, and it probably should cover everything. So so I, I don't I don't think we want to just rely on that because then that would be our only statement. Um, the other one, I maybe I just want to make this clear. When I say draft a statement, I don't I'm not suggesting draft a statement about homosexuality. Draft it about human sexuality that could be could deal with <coughs> sexual immorality in general. 
Okay, right? To where it's not that we're going straight after any homosexual that comes to our church. We're saying this is this is part of this brokenness that we need to be very specific about. So that's that's I'm, I'm glad you said that. So then marriage is just hey, you know, we're we're saying this is what a, a marriage is. And again, there's there's good practical legal reasons you want to do that, and I think there's good pastoral reasons that we want to do that and make sure that people understand that. Does that that, that make sense? Okay. Would that legally, you know, when they say like, hey, you just made it up on the spot? I was wondering if you have like recorded sermons, would that legally stand? <coughs> uh, it would certainly be your defense, right? You'd say, look, I didn't just make this up today. I've been preaching about this. Sure. So, uh, look, the bottom line in the American court system, people can sue you regardless of what you said or what you. I mean, you all, I'm sure, when you do youth outings, all the parents have to sign their their waiver forms. Blah blah. I'm telling you right now, who cares? Somebody's going to get through that. Okay, it's good that you do it because you're like, I have all these safeguards. But at the end of the day, uh, so so it in some sense it doesn't matter what you do. But any of these building blocks that you can go to a court or that you know it, if and when this happens, you can say, look, this is not anything. We're just kind of creating a policy out of thin air. This this is something we've settled as a church, and and I think that'll that'll help you. Right now, as far as your opinion, does the uh, position of the separation of church and state still guard us somewhat? Yeah, and listen, I don't yeah. even want to be saying this guy is yeah, yeah. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're talking about, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, I, I don't think that this is going to happen next week. I'm, I'm honestly surprised with how fast this has come onto the scene for us. Now, maybe some of you are going, don't surprise me at all. I don't think it was fast. It feels like it gained a head of steam in the last few years very, very quickly. You know, since Prop 8. And Prop 8 kind of brought, you know, it to the surface and, and, it, did, and, it, and it created this firestorm and, and that goes all the way to the Supreme Court and you, know, you, get, you get all that. I think, yes, I do think religious liberty is still intact. I think we're getting in days where it's um, it's becoming increasingly fragile. And there's going to be ways, there's always ways uh, to to argue around it. They can call it hate speech. Um, you're not allowed to preach that from your pulpit. You're not. I mean, I, I, I think conceivably these things can happen. I, I don't want to be alarmist. I, I, I don't want to be one of these, you know... Um, you know, doomsday. I, I, I just think there are some good practical things that you can do in the meantime. And I think part of the, the battle against that isn't just sticking something in your constitution bylaws and policies. I think the battle against that is that, again, we need to be a winsome biblical voice that stands up and gives a an articulate uh, defense uh, against the arguments that are out there, refuting those who contradict, but at the same time Loving those who, who are struggling, and I think there's a delicate balance there. Yeah, Austin, I want to share share a little something just to affirm what you said and then ask a question. But we have a guy in our church who was at one point a pastor, um, and he got caught in basically a hypocritical lifestyle of homosexuality. Um, he's kind of he's living as part of our church, and struggling with same sex attraction. But he told me a couple weeks ago 
he, I, had, I had shared something in my sermon. He said, and he came up to me afterwards, thank you for being uh, a real person, for being transparent. <coughs> because it was all, it's on me, but the picture perfect, squeaky clean pulpit that I lived under for so many years helped me in my, helped feed my own hypocrisy. Um, the, I guess it just affirmed to me the value of creating a culture where we're all broken and all in need of grace. Um, and I was thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're sin, you, you're not expecting God to use in those ways. But, so that was encouraging. It, my question is, uh, you know, seeing this as an opportunity, like ground level, what do those opportunities look like? Are we talking about uh, personal conversations that our members have? Or are we talking about at some level, as a whole, you know, as a, as a local church, is there a corporate local church? Are there opportunities, or um, what does that look like? Oh. I, I guess when I when I say that, and some of you speak to this, I'm I'm here to learn with you. But when I say that, I'm thinking it is an opportunity uh, for us, you know, to 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 really speak a relevant biblical word into our day. Um, God is God is serving us up. You know, the gospel flourishes in the midst of decay, right? I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't flourish in sanitized soil. And, and and here is this this you know putridness that you know for us, gosh, it seems so crazy that this is even happening. But here's this here's this. Sin that's sort of coming our way, and our and we can either retreat from that, or we can say, no, no, we want to have a voice in that. We don't want that voice. We're not. We're you know. We're. I heard uh, Piper and Eric McTaxis talking the other week. It was a great conversation. They said, they said, you know, we're so afraid of being Jerry Falwell, uh, right wing, uh, Republican Christians, and so in some sense we don't want to stand up for anything, and I think we have to stand up. And maybe we don't want to do it the way we saw some other people do it, but we, we've got this opportunity to speak into this moment in our culture um, where, I love Russell Moore's, um, he says, we're no longer the moral majority, we're the prophetic minority. Prophets aren't liked. At least, you know, when I read my Old Testament, they're not like this wildly popular group of people. They say things in the midst of their culture that hurt, that sting, that get them beaten, that get them thrown away and you know, killed and all this. Here's our opportunity to maybe take some bumps and bruises and hits and, and things, but, but we do it in a winsome, godly way. And we do it because we know where we are in the story. And we have this incredible resource of joy to go, I know how this ends and I can stand up and I can be prophetic in the midst of this. And I feel like here's an opportunity, at least as how I'm seeing it, here's an opportunity for us to speak very relevantly, maybe the most relevant thing right now, and very prophetically, very biblically, into into the situation. To me, that's that's just not an opportunity, Tim, say from my perspective, that I've seen served up in, in, in my lifetime this far. I mean, some of you talk about that, but what do you think? I mean, is there, what do you, is this an opportunity? Is this, and if it is, how do you, how do you see it? 
Well, just going along with what you're saying, um, while you're talking, I was actually thinking about you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. Like you know we're even though you know the U.S. is not at that point, but when the majority of it worships you know the God of this world where they're at, and so you know us as believers have to stand up and like when the world is saying, okay, we want you to bow down to this, and we want the loudest voice is the ones where it's like we're standing up saying we're not going to bend our knee to this and oftentimes God uses the the ones that are thrown into <laughs> to the furnace right. to speak the loudest to the world yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean as you were being a few things I'm really thankful for this and uh, I wish I was recording on my iPhone <laughs> posted on the, on the website but um, uh, I, I think that, that comment you made about the spiral of silence, and and um, I mean I felt I felt one. I wrote here on the side. I need to feel that this is a wonderful opportunity because, j- like your your. I guess your your enthusiasm for the moment is transferring. At least I feel for me. Like I feel like yes, this is a moment like that, and and so I felt encouraged by that. And you know, it does embolden me. And I re- I remember at, for a while I would, I would constantly post um, Bodhi Bakum's article. On Facebook, just regular, maybe like you know, once every three weeks, I just repost it, just so that it's just constantly there. Because I thought he he laid a, he made a very good argument out. One of my friends from high school, who is who's an atheist philosopher, we used to talk about the gospel all the time in high school. Um, he he emailed me or he messaged me on Facebook and saying like, "Hey man, like, cause he'd see all the comments and I'd be interacting with people, and he would say like." You know, I could never say that, but I totally agree with you. I'm scared of my kids. <laughs> he's like, but I work for the. He, he's a law. He works for law enforcement. He's like, I can't say that at work. Uh-huh. I could never post anything like that. I think this is horrible for the society. But like, I can't say anything. So I just want to tell you on the side of the private message, like, keep, <laughs> you know, keep posting or like yeah. keep keep talking about the issue. And just, you know, that that boldness, how it transfers to other people. By the way, guys, you know, uh, Keller says this in a recent article, I think he's right. This is going to be a whole new type of literature. I think we're going to see a whole host of books coming out that will deal with this. One of, one of the, um, the footnotes that I, I, I referenced to, um, uh, footnote number three, where there's a Christian Post article, this, this kid that it talked about, this 25-year-old kid who's basically circling the country arguing from the standpoint of the Bible that, that Christianity and the gay lifestyle are not incompatible, he's going to come out with a book next year. I can promise you that'll be a New York Times bestseller. And, and it's going to create a firestorm and it's going to be something that we're going to have to be prepared. Not, you know, we don't want to be near knee-jerk into those things, but we've got to go, okay, all right, it's coming, it's coming. Like, somebody's going to make a biblical defense. Now, I, I'm, I'm waiting for that. Like, I'm like, okay, what does that look like? Because I, I haven't seen it yet, but they're going to. And, and so are we prepared to go, no, let me, let me talk and consider it measured biblical terms in a way that will, will win people, not just with what I'm saying, but in how I'm saying it. I think we're going to be very careful in these days to come to have a very ironic tone in how we, how we deal with this and have a very, um, we're going to have to keep our head in the game. Uh, I heard I heard Doug Wilson talk at his Iron God conference about we want to fight, but we don't want to fight as brutes. We want to fight as intelligent, thoughtful warriors. Um, and and uh, and and I, and I 
think this is this is one of those issues where we just can't go in there and start slashing and burning. It's definitely calculated and thought through. Well, uh, well, we may have to. I mean, because obviously, theologically, it's not. There is no argument, right? right. So we may have to just rule the sword. Fortunately, there might be bloodshed through through this, but we still have to stand right. Stand our ground because of. I think what he's saying is there's a bloodshed that is just uh, hysterical. It's just, I'm just, and people are falling down left and right because you're, then there's the kind of warrior that goes, I survey the battlefield, I know what I'm going to go after, and, 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 and I'm going to be very calculated in how I go about this. And this is what I'm urging us to do, is to, is to not, because, you know, <laughs> I don't know about you, but you, you can get riled on this subject and just vomit. And, and I think we want to be very careful of that in this climate. I think we don't want to vomit. I think we want to go in and we want to be, we want to be uh, uh, faithful and biblical and, and, and measured and thoughtful and intelligent um, about how, how we handle it. Because, I, again, I think, I think there's, a, there's a way to cut this thing down at the knees and to do it in a way that at the end, people are going to hate you. They are. But there won't be unnecessary um, collateral damage. You, you know, like in our in our community or culture, uh, this is a, not a very popular thing we, we have among Hispanics that more of a patriarchal right. background. Right. So um, many times what happens, people that, that develop this lifestyle, they actually move out. Uh, they moved to West or whoever. They yeah, PJ's neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they move out, so there's West not very uh, many circumstances that do happen. But they, they do come up. I have, a, I have a friend from high school. She, she's lesbian. Yeah. And she, but in order for her to stay in the community, she's tough. She's up tat, tattooed uh -huh. down. And, uh -huh. you know, and she walks like in this with me. I'll, I'll not just give you one, I'll give you right. two. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and she she's a truck driver. Okay. And and that, that kind of um, role that's common. A lot of the girls are very masculine and yeah. tough and so in that sense we have to take a different approach and then you have the ones that are in the male end, they become more feminized and they don't like all this so they leave where it's not yeah. so intimidating. To the church level, um, personally, I've then experienced one one case in 25 years, so it's not real common. But uh, so, and I understand the point that we have to be prepared and be wise and, and cross our T's and dot our I's. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's almost like you you got issues with dealing with families, alcoholism, drug addiction, and, and that takes a lot of time. You know. Yeah, so, um, but nevertheless, we, yeah, we should be prepared. And, you know, a little different, I think. Yeah. Different, yeah. Different, different contexts. Yeah. And I think that's what I. Uh, you were asking, like, what kind of opportunities is this? I think one of the opportunities is that as we get awakened for a battle in our midst, it, it awakens us that not that hey, the battle is starting, but we've had a battle for 
the entire existence. There's spiritual warfare, and it's awakening us to the fact not that a battle has begun, but that if we've been in the midst of a battle and are only now realizing it. This is one of the, I guess you could say, battles within a war. This is one of the issues that we are facing, but not the only. I think one thing that it awakens us to is a passion for righteousness, a passion for biblical truth, holistically, through all of these issues. And that's where I think it does. It awakens an opportunity for us to address the the, the divorce, how, how hideous that is. It, it, it awakens us to address all these things because we realize that, that we're not in this, you know, uh, sanitized environment where, you know, all sins are petty. All sins, we, we, when we discuss this issue, we don't have a problem using words like putrid and, and whatever, but we need to understand that's not because this issue isn't, that's because all sin is. That's because all the things that we're dealing with, we probably have not viewed them as warfare and as ugly as they really are. So I, I guess for my understanding, it, it, it doesn't just make me go, okay, we're gearing up for this battle. It makes me realize we've been in a battle. We've been in a war um, and realizing that. If I could read a verse on the battle or on the war, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, verse 6 says, uh, For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way, since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And what are the strongholds? We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. So... Um, I, 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 that's that's not just for pastors. I mean, tech, you know, Corinthians is for, for the church at Corinth, right? So this is for the members. So even as pastors, we um, we're not the only warriors. We are equipping our members to to speak, you know, and and to speak there without like you know just lopping off heads without thinking. There's there's a rhythm to to a conversation. It's listening and speaking. I mean, the, the two areas could be listen only, where you just hear and you don't say anything because you're too scared. The other thing is speak without listening, and just and that would be the reckless kind of warrior, where you're just speaking and you're not listening carefully to the, the the people you're engaging in an actual conversation. Where you can actually, I like how Keller says it is, where you can articulate the your your opponent's view in, in any discussion, not just this one. Where you can articulate their view in a way that they would affirm, and you can articulate it even better than they could. Like you could you could say what they're saying, and then you start to yeah. to um, demolish it, so to speak, according to this. And um, but that's, that requires listening. And I think another part with that that goes into this discussion is speaking against the issue and speaking to people. Right. Like there's there's a positional statement and then there's personal shepherding, yeah. and those two things are not not necessarily the same. And if they're only hearing the position that we're saying, you know, for what's good for society or whatever, then people might not want to come to us. But if you're personally shepherding people and then you're speaking there, it's going to give you a winsomeness and a sensitivity because you you shared life with people on the ground in this area and now when you're speaking to it, you're not speaking just from the biblical standpoint and you're not interacting with someone for the last 20 years and now you're, you you interact with one, now you're just going to start throwing bombs. It, it's you know having the personal shepherding and the positional statement going hand in hand and making that distinction and I, think, I, think, I think Paul does that. And you know, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones reading or hearing him say one time that I don't know very many churches that need to preach through First and Second Corinthians. Because he was talking about, you know, I mean, we all look at First Corinthians and go, they're wild, right? They're just a wild group of people and there's very few wild churches out there. 
But as I thought about it, I thought, you know, this is this is an issue that probably gets us into First Corinthians. And to look at how Paul shepherds those people through the process, I mean, it always starts by just loving them. Just absolutely loving all of them. And I, I'm pastoring you, I'm pastoring you. And now I'm going to get to it. And Romans, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, the only one I can think of. The only time that Paul tackles homosexual, homosexuality in isolation is Romans 1. Every other time, it's just one of many applications, one of many sins that he's going after, right? Where 1 Corinthians 5 or 6, I mean, yeah, he deals with the guy that's in homosexual lifestyle, but then he sort of runs on and talks about other things, and, you know, they talk about perjury and all, all these different things. You were revilers, but such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified. And, and, and it's within this list of stuff where we're not singling out just homosexual people and saying, look, we've got to just talk to you. We're, we're letting that be a part of the application that we bring uh, to, to our preaching. Um, we love them. We care for them. They see that. They hear that. Uh, it's the old adage of they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and then I'll talk to you about about the sin that, that we're dealing with. So, PJ, yeah, Ron? Yeah, any... Any comments about how you've pastored your church into this? And I'm not thinking about the person who comes in and says I'm gay or struggling with this, this issue, but the other people around. I don't know your context. Yeah. You get some staunch fundamentalist kind of like, I hate those people kind of a thing. And I imagine you've got a variety of perspectives sitting in the congregation. And any thoughts or Yeah, no, but then I'm telling you guys, I came here as a learner today. Okay. This, Ron, this is exactly why I wanted to talk about this and even... This made me think through things because this is where I am. I'm sitting here going, how can I shepherd Foothill Church? How can we as a staff shepherd Foothill Church through this cultural moment? And so I want, I'm like, you know, I want to hear what you guys have to say because I, I want to go back into my context and go, okay, how can I wisely, winsomely handle handle this issue? So I don't, I don't know that I've, I can't say oh, we've done it. It just worked out great. Yeah. I'm saying I'm about to enter that fray and. And as as I you know PJ says hey Chris can you come talk and I'm thinking yeah you know what let's talk about homosexuality and I'm thinking <clears throat> before I started really thinking this through I thought okay I, I gotta go I gotta preach a sermon on homosexuality and the more I kept thinking about it I thought no I don't think I, I think that's that's one percent of the problem that's that's like this has to be this has to be something that we start pecking away at in our pastoral ministry in a lot of ways. We're attacking it from, you know, pastoral care and counseling and, and, and application and just pepper insulting our sermons with things like this. So at least that's what I'm I'm walking away after all this and then hearing you guys, that's what I'm walking away, Ron, thinking, I think that's how I want to tackle this. I think I need to speak to it. I think we need to have prophetic voice in the midst of this, but I but I I, I don't want to feel like uh, a sermon or a sermon series is the panacea. That there there needs to be something more systemic happening within our congregations that that deal with the issue. It was so good. It was so helpful and convicting. I feel that far too silent an issue sitting in our congregation right there. So very helpful. I'm just thinking in my mind is these three categories. It's great to start with us. It starts with us basically, uh, and then you've got the the folks that are struggling with that sin. That are coming in, but there's this third category. Yeah. There's everybody else, 
who's sitting in the church that are very much a part of the solution for sure and helping them into that place where they can and people that are very confused I know there's people in my church that are buying into everything that culture is saying yeah because they haven't heard me yet and I don't say oh I'm going to cure them I'm just saying <laughs> they 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 honestly are the people that we say what's wrong with two committed people that love each other and they're hearing all those arguments, so I've got to answer that. But on the other hand, i got to do it in a way where those who struggle with same-sex attraction don't feel like they're getting a boot out the door. They're being loved and embraced and saying, look, this is, this is part of our, our fallenness and brokenness that, that the gospel can dance. Well, I think one of the biggest challenges for the folks in the church is, is the sense of, I don't want to be a hater. Yeah, I don't want to be a people hater. And I can't be a Christian and be a people hater. So if you're telling me homosexual is wrong, I'm automatically feeling like I'm lumped into this category where I'm yeah. supposed to hate people. I think that's where they would need a lot of help yeah. um, walking that through. It's not just two options. Brian? Yes. Yeah, so kind of along those lines, I think one of the things that I've tried to do is I've tried to initiate friendships yeah. with homosexual people in our community that I know are not believers. And, and so you're actually kind of modeling that for people yeah. in yeah. your church. And, and uh, has that really difficult? Have they been resistant to that? No, no. And I think you know, the, 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 maybe the only additional thought that I've had is just being very nuanced in knowing your community. And every community is so different, and really taking the time, being diligent, and knowing the attitudes in the community to have those homosexuality, and, and and really making an effort to maybe break the stereotype. Right, we're anti. And showing that actually I'd love to talk to you and hang out with you. Yeah. And then that opens up doors. And I think you know, modeling that for people in your church is really essential. It's a great point. Great advice. I was thinking too the idea of I mean you guys so but how do we enter this conversation with students too? Because if we don't I think they're the ones that are so impressionable with this and they are so much about loving their friends and not Judging them. judging them, and so uh, that that's a we also have to have a plan for how we communicate that with other as they they see it and it becomes more encouraged and promoted. So we have to have a. I mean, I'm I'm nervous for my kids that are entering into school years right now. I have a five year old, three and a half year old, and a two year old, and like that is going to be something that we have to parent and teach our not only adults struggling with it, but how to parent their kids through it too. Yeah, we had um, uh, we had one of my friends from high school. Uh, I went to high school in Pomona. Uh, he he was living here in LA for a while, and now he's out of town. But he he was coming over for dinner, I think just two or three months ago, because he was in town. And uh, we had to prep my son, who's seven years old, because he's very effeminate. Uh, my friend is not my son. My friend is. <laughs> and um, and my son would ask what he he would just ask questions like, Hey, Dad, why is he talking like that? Or you know. And so we have to just prep him, and we're like, me and her, we're like, what do we do? Like, we have to figure out, he's seven years old, like, you know, how deep do you go with this so that when we have dinner, my son's able to function and, and engage him without, you know, just what looking out. Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, we, I don't know if we did it, we just, you know, described, got him ready for it, he sounds like this, and, you know, don't ask those, you can ask those questions about it after, and, yeah, it's just, but wrestling with those issues because you're, 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 you're um, engaging them and you're friends with them. That's, yeah. It seems to me like that's a little bit of a microcosm of the church, right? So how do you teach your kids to love people and yet recognize sin, right? That's a, it's a, 
thing in parenting that can be very difficult. But we're doing the same thing with the church, is trying to teach our people how to love people and yet be discerning at the same time and stand for the truth. I think one of the most practical things that you said, Chris, that got me thinking on in terms of the application, the slow drip as opposed to a sermon series, is how as a preacher for me, I naturally think when I'm when I'm studying a text, how does it apply to married people? How does it apply to singles? How does it apply to workplace? How does it apply to school for the students? Normal. And, yeah, the category <laughs> think of is normal. The categories in my mind of application, like because we don't just say, Oh, I'm gonna preach a series on marriage, now I'm done, I have to help people with their marriage. No, we work I mean, at least for me, I'm constantly thinking about that with a lot of young married couples in our church, how to equip them for how they fight and, and pride. So when you're talking about pride, you fight to marriage, you know, but it's just the, the that homosexual side of it. Like I don't that's not a category that I normally run to and say, Okay, is there anything I can hit on here? But that's what you're saying almost is like just shaping it on the whole by by letting different texts address how they address that issue. So it's very practical. Thank you for that. Thanks guys.